Fafner Automitis is a fiber artist. They make giant paper spheres and seed-like shapes. It takes a lot of work. For Fafner, that process creates space to think about trauma. And the ways that people are haunted by psychic trauma, by trauma that their grandparents or their parents may have lived through, and how those things, it's being shown through research that uh, these traumas are imprinted in us, and that uh, it can be really affecting the way that we go through life. This week on Interstates, fiber artist Fafner Adamitis talks about haunting, paper, chaos versus the grid, and more. And stay tuned after that for two stories about getting to the end of long relationships. One of those is not quite as significant as the other. Stick around. In some cases, these processes are a very quick gesture that just has to be repeated over time. Um, so much of, of this is about gesture, I think. With the basket weaving, too, there's certain gestures within the weaving of the reed that creates its shape or its distortion. And that refers back to that, that performance, that the movement of arms, the hunch of a body, the pain in the back, you know, after hours and hours of weaving, it all, it all comes into it. And, and the repetition also. Mm -hmm. I guess my mind went in two directions because gesture made me think of a performance and repetition and communication. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's something too just about the, the sort of the pain or just the embodiment of the fact that like we have to repeat things in order to survive, like whether it's mm -hmm. daily tasks or whatever, yeah. and that we also just have sort of have to deal with the fact that we have bodies that are going to be in pain and are going to suffer and, and stuff like that. So anyway, that's sort yeah. of what the gestures make me think of. Well, I think that that's so true too. Uh, being a non-binary person in the world, every day my performance. I mean, we all perform every day, whether we know it or not, by the clothes we wear or how we talk or, you know, what we're putting forward. And uh, the performance of gender or pushing against gender is an, it's a repetition every day, every day. And even um, having to remind people about pronouns, it's a repetition that happens nearly every day. Um, and that insistence on being a body in a world that doesn't necessarily want something beyond the binary. There, there is a gestural performance and resistance that happens in all of that. My name is Fafner Adamitis, and I am a visiting assistant faculty member at IU in Bloomington. And this is Interstates from WFIU, also in Bloomington, Indiana, down the stairs and through a couple hallways from Fafner's Fiber Studio. I'm Alex Chambers, and we're talking today about textile politics. This is the second in a two-part series. If you missed the first, it's in our podcast feed. It's called Queer Embroidery, and I talked with Ileana Haberman about complicated stitches and mental health. This week, 
We're talking about gender and repetition, haunting, intergenerational trauma, paper, felting, and chaos versus the grid. Fafner is a fiber artist. They have a love-hate relationship with the grid. The grid comes up so much in textiles because uh, woven pieces are based on a grid, right? A vertical and a horizontal thread or string. And I'm always pushing against that because I work with chaos structure. I call them chaos structures, the wool and the paper pulp. So I'm constantly kind of trying to get away from the grid or challenge the grid. Yet the grid is very, very comforting and satisfying. It's so orderly and so predictable. There's comfort in that, but I want to push against that comfort and uh, defy the grid or uh, totally uh, make the grid imperfect or obliterate it <laughs> completely. Um, so you might notice a lot of that when you see work in my studio. There's the grid of like basket forms as well as grids like the netting or a textile, like a hand-woven textile. And looking around the room, there's a lot of materials, a lot of different kinds of materials, um, a lot of dried pulp on the floor. <laughs> it's a lot of buckets. <laughs> um, uh, and they're like they're covered with, um, they're kind of spattered with, looks like the remains of, uh, or like paper pulp. Yes, exactly. Um, a lot of paper pulp strewn around. Um, there's also a lot of basket making reed. There are tools, stacks of books, always. I'm thinking just about the sort of the clean straight lines of something and, you know, straight in multiple senses. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's not, um, I don't think it's a difficult jump to make between the grid and a binary loving culture and pushing against it and creating a new topography, a new way of being and kind of reveling in that. I think that's really important. Uh, as a person like myself and, and many other people who are trying to find a new way to fit or a new kind of place to fit into or to feel at home in. So uh, I consider all of these an exploration in that also. And I just, again, the rep, so for whatever reason I'm caught up, I keep coming back to this repetition, mm -hmm. you know, repeating it. And I guess I just want to reemphasize what you already said about the, the necessity of repeating the gender performance, again, that we all do, yeah. but that as a, a queer person, non-binary person, a person who's not just a person who has to think about it, you know, about one's presentation in the world, um, requires that, that repetition, which can create space, mm -hmm. but to create that space, you have to be pushing something aside or pushing against something yes. and you have to do it over and over. You can't just do it once and be done. Right. Yeah. And even if I wanted to be done with the performance of gender, other people constantly remind me that I'm not done because I may feel comfortable where I am or who I am, but other people love to tell me how uncomfortable they are. So uh, whether or not I want to be continuing that work, I, I will always have to. And, and I'm sure a lot of other folks in a similar position will kind of uh, find that to be true, too. It does feel endless sometimes. And I've spent many years getting past the point of feeling, 
I mean, I always feel a little bit attacked when that happens, but I've come to understand it really is so much more about their own discomfort rather than what I'm doing, because there is a sense of something not being right. And for some folks, that's just, um, it's, it compels them to have to confront someone. Yeah, I could go on and on about that. <laughs> <laughs> this is the second in the textile politics series. As I said in part one, I stole that name from a poster I saw for a class. Fafner is the artist who taught that class. The class explored the role of textiles in community movements and activism. But as I spent time with Fafner's work, I realized we shared another interest, which is how we talk about, think about, represent, and tell stories of traumatic histories and histories of people whose presence in the world has been erased. That erasure isn't necessarily linked to trauma or oppression, but it often is, whether we're talking about the Middle Passage of Africans taken as slaves across the Atlantic, or the Holocaust, or a lot of the history of women in general. So I wanted to talk about how we talk about memory and trauma, or how we don't talk about it but make space for it. We can think about this in terms of public pieces, like the beautiful and kind of haunting large spheres and husks Fafner has made out of black paper, but also in terms of the process of making them. So right now I have a small piece that every day I've been uh, dripping pulp over. Um, this process of either dipping or pouring over pulp you have to let it dry and then add another layer to build it up and make it stronger. So in some cases, these pieces take many, many days or even a week or two to fully build up. So this, this is what it sounds like. I'd love to talk about some specific pieces. If you could talk about the presence of absence. It's hydrostone, which is very similar to plaster. And when I created this, this uh, group of small sculptures, I embedded a handmade weaving into the hydrostone when it was setting, and then kind of excavated <laughs> that weaving out of the hydrostone. So what was left behind is an impression of the weaving. In some cases, um, small sections of string, were left behind in the, the hydrostone because it set. And to me, this is a really kind of important nod to trauma, for sure. The idea that uh, that event or that person or object, whatever it might be, is no longer present, but the impression of it, the scar of it, um, the memory of it is still very much there. So it also is a nod back to the history of textiles. This is something that's always been really fascinating to me when talking about history in terms of um, like archaeological history and how textiles, because they're ephemeral and they fall apart and they don't last in the same way that stone or ceramic lasts over years, that has been very hard for people to fully understand how old textile processes are because we don't have physical examples necessarily. But one of the ways that people were able to 
kind of note this is that uh, there was uh, early examples of ceramic pieces that had textiles embedded in the surface. So it was used as maybe a decoration in the making of those ceramics from thousands of years ago. And that discovery of the woven structure of, you know, like a thin band of textiles is how uh, many people realized that they're much, much older than we initially thought. So that like that moment of realization, like that presence of something that is not there anymore, um, like that's kind of a revelation to me to think about that, that the absence of something is how we understand its presence. I mean, it goes back also to just the idea of making space, holding space for things. I mean, so many of my large paper pieces are really so much about holding space, taking up space, making space hard to navigate, you know, making them seen. So that all feels wrapped up in that piece for me. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about the big the paper pieces and yeah. maybe describe what they look like? Sure. A lot of the large-scale paper pieces that I've been doing over the past five or six or maybe more years, they're made in a kind of paper mache style. And I am using uh, large inflatable um, pieces as kind of the armature. And when I make these, I'm making, I'm putting multiple layers, sometimes up to 10 or 12 layers of paper so that they're very, very strong. And um, something that's incredibly important to me about these pieces is that the armature, the object that I'm casting around goes away so that it's only the paper that's holding up. Um, so there's a reminder of that object in the pieces, but it's not about that original object. It's about what's there in front of you. So that that kind of husk quality definitely goes back to these ideas of like the psychic phantom, the psychic trauma that is so often talked about in uh, psychoanalysis and around inherited trauma. Right, the haunting. Mm-hmm, the haunting, exactly. We're talking with artist Fafner Adamitis about papermaking, the use of chaos and improvisation, and psychic phantoms. This is Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. We'll have more after the break. I'm talking today with Fafner Adamitis, a fiber artist who creates large paper spheres and seed shapes that make space for psychic phantoms and intergenerational trauma. There's a slight difference that we might think about between psychic trauma and those psychic phantoms that can haunt. On its own, trauma doesn't necessarily create a need to do something, to address something. It's when the phantom shows up that suddenly something needs to be done. There's a writer who explained this to me. She made haunting not more clear exactly, but richer in its significance. The writer's name is Avery Gordon. She's also a sociologist, but a bit of a runaway one. And she shows us how haunting is also a social phenomenon. Like, it's not personal. Or it is. It very much is, being in the presence of ghosts. But those ghosts and the traumas they represent come about because of society. As she worked out her ideas of haunting, she wrote that haunting was the domain of turmoil and trouble. 
that moment when things are not in their assigned places, when the cracks and rigging are exposed, when the people who are meant to be invisible show up without any sign of leaving, when disturbed feelings cannot be put away, when something else, something different from before, seems like it must be done. Fafner's work allows the cracks and rigging to be exposed. It makes space for the phantoms. There's often a kind of material deception that happens with these people, uh, with these pieces. People often think that it's something else when they're approaching it because it seems impossible for something like paper to hold itself up or to be that big. Those huge black papery husks that end up in galleries, they're not the only goal. The process is central to Fafner's work, too. And the particular materials they're working with, paper, felt, tend to guide that process. When it comes to shrinkage of felt during the felt-making process, there's only so much that I can really control. And with the paper pulp, which also shrinks and can sag and drip and do all these lovely things, um, I only have so much control over that. I think one of the things that I'm realizing just as you're describing it that has drawn me to your work has been the attention to the materials. Like you're not... um, trying to just make something that you have a vision for and then it's just going to come out exactly as your vision wants it to be and then it's going to communicate like a message or something really clear. Instead, you have all these different pieces that are really that are really shaped by the process and by maybe imperfection or something like that. Um, I just find that really interesting and I find it really... I don't know if tender is exactly the right word, but I find it really uh, satisfying and engaging, Mm -hmm. I guess. I think tender is definitely an appropriate word. I think about softness um, and not uh, in a tactile way, but also in a relational way. This idea of uh, radical softness is something that I go back to a lot as – as a person who definitely works from a place of empathy, like in terms of my teaching and in terms of my kind of place in the world and how I take in the world. So, I mean, descriptors like that feel very appropriate and it's very improvisational. It, it Like you said, it's not perfect. There are a lot of uh, maybe what some people might think of as damage points or imperfections or fraying or whatever it might be. I mean, that's a life, <laughs> you know, that, that is a life. So much of the conceptual drive in my work is about trauma and about inherited trauma over generations. Those are not clean lines. <laughs> you know, those are not figurative moments. Those are moments and ideas that are very abstract and hard to pin down and, um, very amorphous in so many ways. So uh, it feels appropriate to me to work in this kind of mode. How did trauma become the one of the main sort of conceptual ideas in your work, something you wanted to explore? I first started focusing on trauma, specifically inherited trauma, when I was in grad school. And this, this notion of epigenetic 
transgenerational epigenetic inheritance is where I kind of started my research and thinking about um, psychoanalysis also and the ways that people are haunted in many ways by psychic trauma, by trauma that their grandparents or their parents may have lived through um, and how those things, um, it's being shown uh, through research that uh, these traumas are imprinted in us and that uh, it can be really affecting the way that we go through life. That idea that I may be repeating someone else's story um, or following a certain path because of like the life of my grandmother or whoever it might be, um, that's another line of repetition to me. Um, and how, how I choose to kind of process some of that is through the making. Um, I think of my studio practice as a meditation on these things. <laughs> Maybe it's also uh, just a therapeutic uh, process too because it takes so much time and there's so much um, physical repetition in what I do. Um, I think that's another reason why I rarely have anyone else in my studio while I'm working. Like I don't have studio assistants or or work in a shared studio um, because it feels quite private to me. Um, and I, I think I need to be in a particular headspace, like so many artists. But there's a particular headspace that also feels very private and um, I kind of need the isolation, I think, to be able to fully get into those things. Not all of Fafner's work is in isolation, though, because they're a teacher, too. As I've said, I reached out to them because I was intrigued by this particular class they developed. And so, as we approach the end of a two-part series on textile politics, the question you may or may not have been waiting for this whole time. What made you want to teach a class called Textile Politics? Well, I think um, partially it's my own interest in the history of textiles. So um, doing this kind of special topics class was a way for me to really zero in on the particulars of why fibers or textile processes have been so embedded in histories of protest or uh, different ways people have tried to find a voice. What were some of the specific uh, histories that you ended up delving into? We spent a lot of time talking about the AIDS quilt. That is such a, a very particular moment in time and a very particular and unconventional way for a public to notice, hold space for people who were dying, people who had died. And the AIDS quilt, um, in terms of a memorial, is so unusual because it is made of ephemeral materials. It's not made of the typical kinds of materials that you would think a monument or a memorial should be made of. It's not going to last through <laughs> the weather. Um, it's not going to last through being touched or walked upon. Can you just describe the AIDS quilt absolutely. for people who aren't familiar? Yeah, absolutely. That's that's important to be able to kind of visualize the vastness of it. Um, so this is a, a project that was started in the mid-80s, and it was created as a way to 
memorialize people who had died from AIDS. So um, it's made up of different panels of fabric that have the inscription of someone's name. Often it would have, the different panels would have things that would kind of refer to the person's character or maybe where they were from or things that they loved. So there could be um, literal objects sewn onto the panels. It might have uh, different kind of materials like T-shirt or clothing material that that person wore. So it was, uh, each panel was very personal. So it's thousands and thousands of different panels. And originally it was shown outside the Washington Monument in D.C. And uh, the, the quilt pieces were all laid out on the ground, and it covered so much space that people had to walk around all of the panels. If you ever see images of the AIDS quilt laid out, it is, it is massive, and it gives the viewer a real, like, the visual impact of how many people that represents. And I know at this point it's become so large that it can't be displayed as one piece anywhere because it's just so, so big. So is it still in process? Yeah. So um, right now, from what I know, it is stored in a very large warehouse space in Atlanta. And there are uh, people who are constantly working on it, like keeping it um, together, maintaining it. This is another thing that's so particular about the AIDS quilt as a monument is that it, it needs constant attention. So uh, sewing on pieces that have fallen off, replacing objects that may have crumbled or fallen apart over the years. There's small portions of it that do travel around and get shown at various locations around the U.S. But it's always in a very fragmented, partial state because it is just so vast. I want to get back to your class for just a minute and think about how these ideas played out with your students mm -hmm. and what that what unfolded and came out of your, your class? Yeah. So the class, it, it was a studio class. So though we were talking a lot about history and doing readings and having a number of discussions kind of grappling with a lot of the ideas, the final project was actually a collective project that the whole class worked on together. I did not uh, dictate any of the rules of the project. And through a number of classes and conversation, um, they narrowed down to the, the project to this community weaving uh, that we did in one of the, the public spaces in the, the fine arts building on campus. And as a culminating project for the whole semester, I found it incredibly moving to see the students become so invested in the project. They took on every bit of it, making posters. They designed a website. They designed a survey, you know, for people who participated um, to get feedback. And that project was really about community care. It was about uh, creating a space for anybody in the community to stop, be seen, have somebody ask them how they were. I know that sounds very simple, but sometimes having maybe a stranger, just ask you how you're doing, <laughs> you know, if you're in the midst of a pandemic, as we have been, and so many other stressors um, that people feel. The project was to uh, offer affirmations 
really, to students positive messages. So whoever interacted with the weavings began to unravel that weaving that the students created that had messages, um, written messages on pieces of cloth that people could take away with them. And then the second part was that those participants could then write a message and put it into another weaving. So it was sort of a circular, like giving something and giving back. I was kind of a fly on the wall during that project, and I really, everybody had their jobs, and I watched them and kind of listened in as it was all happening. And to hear my students talk about how really touching it was to be there and to watch people write the messages and to interact with the participants, I, I'm, I'm getting goosebumps a little bit talking about it because they... They were feel like they were giving to the community, but they were feeling the impact of that too. It wasn't just about a job or a grade. Um, they weren't just going through the motions. Like they were feeling that impact of what it means to actually create a space to try to help people, to encourage them. You know, even if it's a small gesture, they were getting that. And you know, I I, I couldn't have asked for for more from that experience. It was it was really, really moving. Do you want to hear other paper sounds? I would love to hear more sounds, yeah. You've been listening to a conversation with fiber artist Fafner Adamitis that I recorded in the spring of 2022 when they were a visiting professor at Indiana University. As of fall 2022, they've joined the Fibers faculty at California State University, Long Beach, and their work is in a group show at Craft Contemporary in Los Angeles. It's time for a short break. When we come back, two stories about the ends of long relationships. Stick around. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. For those of us in the WFIU offices, a day rarely went by when we did not see our own John Bailey clutching a can of his favorite drink, Tab. Tab is a diet soda that most people assume was discontinued decades ago. After years of languishing at the far end of the soda aisle, Tab has at last fallen victim to a decision by its parent company, Coca-Cola, to end production. And John felt compelled not just to find a new source of caffeine, but also to confront the nature of his reliance on a product that only a few found easy to love. Here's John. It's early on a Tuesday morning, Bloomington, Indiana, winter of 2014. I'm scanning the soda aisle of the grocery store I frequent, and I look up and meet the eye of my Coke dealer. You know, the guy from the Coca-Cola bottler who restocks the shelves. He knows why I'm there, to haunt the narrow space reserved for my beloved diet soda, Tab. And he can see that I've just found that space supplanted with some other newer arcane cola, Diet Coke with lime, sweetened with Splenda. Even the little sticker on the shelf with the Tab logo on it has been peeled off. He anticipates an anguished query from me and preempts it. Tab will be back, he says. An old lady came by and cleaned us out yesterday. We just have to get some more from the regional bottler in Louisville. Thank God, I say. I was afraid I was the only one in town still drinking it. My dealer's flat affect doesn't change. 
Nah, he says. We got about four. In a town of about 80,000, I was one of four. Four keepers of a white hot flame in a hot pink can. For decades, Tab was my constant companion. I used to consider it my most successful long-term relationship. And now, having consumed all the Tab I will ever drink, all that's left for me to look at is the bond. You can pack a surprising amount of obsession and loneliness and anxiety into a 12-ounce can. And only when you spill it do you feel how sticky it all is. I never believed that the drink I loved unconditionally was good for me, or even, you know, good. Tab appeared in 1963 as the first diet soda, intended not for diabetics, but for people who were dieting. It was Coke, but minus cane sugar and plus an OG sweetener, initially cyclamate, until that was outlawed in the 70s due to its effect on lab rats. Saccharin followed, and in the 80s, the saccharin was cut with NutraSweet, a blend that held firm until Tab was discontinued in 2021. Through all its iterations, the flavor profile was dominated by a back-of-the-tongue bitterness that resisted being brushed entirely away. The writer Mark Lehner referred to the drink as robot sweat and likened it to raw sewage. The comedian Bobcat Goldthwait speculated that its main ingredient was battery acid. Their remarks carried the ring of truth even among diehards like me. It was the perfect beverage to keep in a work fridge. Rarely was anyone tempted to pilfer it, eager as I was to share it. A couple of times I asked one friend whether I could offer him a tab, and each time he shot back, you can offer. Tab was, by almost any measure, gross. It was known to be vile, and it was mine for some time. Starting at a young age, I held it as a secret vice. My first dalliance with Tab occurred in about 1980 when I was five, and it was in its second decade as reigning queen of the low-cal colas. Its crown had yet to be snatched by Diet Coke, a new product soon to be made by the same company and bearing the flagship name. Tab seemed exotic to me, not least because it was understood in my household to be forbidden. Eager as my mom was to restrict the sugar intake of everyone in the family, she reserved Tab as her own treat. So I surreptitiously swigged straight from the two-liter when no one was looking. This was entirely on brand for the emerging binger that I was. Sneaking slugs from the gallon of whole milk, smuggling in zingers I'd scored for a quarter from the day-old hostess outlet. Eventually, I became, in effect, a supersized version of the kid who raided the family fridge. And my behavior continued even after the fridge became my own. By adulthood, the irony of my conspicuous consumption was laid bare. The diet soda I was quaffing with abandon could not do its job entirely by itself. Tab fell out of my life for some time, 
as my mother and I both began seeing other sodas. And I was hardly the only one to stop taking notice of it. Coca-Cola pulled its advertising dollars for Tab in the late 80s. Its hardcore adherence, though, ensured that it took years or even decades to disappear from store shelves in most towns. That allowed me to rediscover Tab in college in the mid-90s, and my curiosity about a now-obscure drink quickly flourished into a kind of dependency. I started buying it wholesale from my area Coke bottler, which manufactured it for a while even after retailers stopped ordering it. And when that connection ran dry, I would drive two hours or more to a larger city and raid the shelves of several supermarkets. I knew about how many 12-packs I could fit in my Corolla. A little bit of trunk Tetris could push the figure well north of 40. Upon moving from Missouri to Indiana in 2010, I acquired my first vanity plate. It read T-A-B-H-N-T-R, Tab Hunter. As I became increasingly caffeine intolerant, my consumption of Tab waned. My daily six-plus consumed at all hours turned into one or two, mostly at the office. But my being seen so frequently with Tab, compounded by my tendency to collect and retell stories about it, announced what might have been called an addiction. And like so many addicts of all stripes, I had enablers. Every mother-in-law figure in my life who could find it procured it for me. When Coke announced in the fall of 2020 that Tab would at last be ending production, mere acquaintances on social media rallied around me. The next spring, one person, who I think I had met only two or three times, found 33 12-packs in Chicago, had them all driven down to me, and refused reimbursement. That was the stash I nursed for more than a year until this summer when the well ran dry. Many people who did not gift me the soda itself went out of their way to grant me swag. Vintage print ads, pendant charms, fridge magnets, t-shirts and hats, and those 1970s hourglass-shaped tab logo drinking glasses you'll find in any flea market and only there. There was one thing I wouldn't shut up about, and at least that made my loved ones gift shopping easy. It was through sheer volume of communication that I had unwittingly, I think, come to stake my identity on a beverage that people of a certain age considered a punchline. Some people begged me to come clean, sure as they were that my omnipresent can and steady stream of stories represented an unwavering commitment to a performance art bit. Surely, they thought, he couldn't like Tab that much. One person very close to me confided in a mutual acquaintance that she sensed I didn't genuinely like to drink it at all, that at root, my tab interactions were about collecting the reactions of the people in my midst. The charge rattled me, and I was hard-pressed to mount a real defense. Across the last 25 years, I drank well over 20,000 cans. That should have spoken for itself. And the nervous person in me liked that any one of those cans consumed in the presence of another could become a conversation piece. There was no dead air in a can of tab. There never did seem to be a shortage of discussion, but a couple of days before turning 47 in August, I steered decades of decidedly one-sided talk on this topic toward a close.
I hosted dozens of friends on Facebook Live for a valedictory event in which I shared some of my old set pieces a final time before their retirement while nursing my final two cans of tab. Can or the glass? Okay, we got half and half. You know what? I think we're going to split the diff here. I'm going to put at, at least some of this in the glass so we can really Faced at last with this loss after years of borrowed time, of a steady conveyance of unnatural sweetness, I could not help but reflect. I think some of my acquaintances expected to see me melting down, perhaps into a sticky brown puddle, but I mainly felt relief not least because the end of my stash was nearly 16 months past its sell-by date. The fizz was intact, but the drink had become, to invoke a wine term, corked. Toward the end, its flavor profile recalled nothing more than the scent of my father's English leather aftershave, a sense memory that, notably, had lain dormant since around the time I was first drinking tab. At the end, I drank it, much for the same reason I had started all those years ago. I relied on this diet soda to try to fill a number of voids. The absence of this flawed piece of the past is pushing me to inhabit the insecure present. As with any relationship though, I will miss it. Little as it might have done to bring out the best in me, I did love Tab, from the first sip right up to the bittersweet end. That was WFIU Station Operations Director and my boss, John Bailey. You know, I gotta say, the beginnings of our staff meetings are just not the same without the sound of that can being freshly opened. I guess we miss you too, Tab. Okay, we're going to end with a story by producer Anna Grimes about what happens to your relationship with your mother when she can no longer remember who you are. I'm home, back from college for the weekend, and not much has changed. Well, there's now paint swatches on the walls to compare the colors. It's been months, but my mom hasn't pulled the trigger to repaint yet. Judy Grimes is not one for change. She's lived in the same house for years. She's worked the same job, even has the same haircut. But recently, there's been a dramatic shift in something she thought would never change. Her mom. If you tell someone, I really miss my mom, or use words that you feel, it's like, well, is your mom dead? No, she's just right here. It's just that she's not my mom anymore. Two years ago, her mom, Frida Hawk, was diagnosed with frontotemporal dementia. Mm -hmm. We're sitting at the dining room table. My mom's on her iPad to distract from the awkward describing when she first noticed a difference. When my dad was really, really sick, she started acting very strange. Before, Grandma would stay with him, even if it meant sleeping on a chair. But she stopped coming. It was really, really odd, and it hurt my dad a lot. But he told me, no, she, she can't remember anything. You've, you have to make sure that she's okay. And after my dad died, it became very, very obvious that there were problems. Frida spends more and more time at my mom's house, eats at least one meal there a day. This Sunday, I drive her home after dinner. We're in the old Accord. It's the same car that she used to pick me up from school in like 10 years ago. 
It's got the same decorative stuffed smiley face hanging from the rearview mirror. It's the car that she gave me when the doctor told her to stop driving. My grandma couldn't understand the street signs anymore. Soon, she won't be able to live alone. It's snowing hard. Oh, are you okay? Oh, it's lit. She almost falls. Here. Oh, be careful. Inside, the house feels empty. I still get the same to her, though. Take off my coat. Because she is my grandma. We head straight for the fridge. I showed you my food, didn't I? You can show me again? Look. It's near empty, with the exception of several microwave meals. Chicken and broccoli. (laughs) I don't Judy buys those for me. My grandma can't cook anymore, really. But she was a really good cook, the things that she made. When talking about it, my mom said, She likes still the same things, and she doesn't like the same things, but she doesn't remember any. So I will will cook something that she has cooked for years and years and years since I was a very little girl. And she will ask, well, what is this? And we'll have her taste it. And she'll be like, well, this is really good. And I'm like, well, Mom, it's your recipe. She just doesn't remember. It's just so sad because that's what moms are for. You get stuck on a recipe or, or something or you get really hungry for something they used to make. And you can call them and say, will you make that for me? Or tell me how to make it. It just turns into calling my sisters and saying, do you happen to have the recipe? Did you get it written down before mom started forgetting everything? And sometimes they do. And sometimes they're like, no, I was hoping you had it. And so then it's, it's just lost forever. Nerve cells and their connections are deteriorating in the frontal and temporal lobes of my grandma's brain. These regions that govern personality, behavior, and language are breaking down. My mother is a doctor of pharmacy, and she understands anatomy. She's conscious of dementia in a way most aren't. I know that at some point, just as an example, she won't remember how to cough. She won't remember how how to eat, and I mean, all of the other functions that are way more important than remembering someone's name. People with dementia end up just bedridden. So that makes it harder, because I know that there's really horrible things to come. Back in my grandma's house, the thing she was most excited to show me were the pictures. The walls are all lined with framed photos of family and old friends. They smile down on you immediately on entry. And she describes her favorite pastime, sitting in her best chair and looking out talking to her pictures, saying hello and reminding each image of each precious person that she loves them. I look up and I say, oh, hi, Cindy. You're looking great. And Debbie and Mommy and Daddy and Judy and Joshua and Nicole. So good to see all of you. And Benny and Anna and... I sit here telling how much I love them. <laughs> it gives me something to do. Oh, yeah, I'll say, oh, oh, I still love you so much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I love those pictures. She imbued some of this appreciation for pictures in the heart of my mom. When you look back through pictures, you might say, oh, I totally forgot that this happened and it floods a whole bunch of memories from that time period back. And without that picture, that memory is gone forever. So that's one of the reasons why I like pictures. At this point in time, Frida, the mom she remembers, the one in her pictures, 
only exists in memories. Um, they're still there, but they're just a shell of who they were. They're not that person anymore. They're a different person. And so you can love that different person, but that's not, that's not the person. That person is gone. <laughs> I, I think that's really hard. Anna Grimes is a researcher and science writer in Indianapolis. She produced this story in early 2020. Her grandmother, Frida May Hawk, passed away that November. listening to Interstates from WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana. If you have a story for us or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates or find me on Twitter at interstatespod. Speaking of found sound, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Ea Bonbinder, Aaron Kane, Mark Chelly, Yane Sanchez-Lopez, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is John Bailey. Special thanks this week to Fafner Adamitis, John Bailey, and Anna Grimes. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer. We have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music and Airport People. All right, time for some found sound. You've been listening to, you guessed it, Canada Geese, Griffey Lake, Bloomington, Indiana. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks for listening. See airplanes like stars sleep.